Los mejores viajes nacen en la carretera. Pero este comenzará en tu mente. ¿Escuchas ese rugido? ¿Sientes la experiencia de poder? ¿La emoción de la libertad? Ya estás preparado para vivir tu nueva aventura. Nueva Ram 1500. Hecha para vivir. Ram es una marca registrada de FCA US LLC. the Pulse of the Joy News Channel. Coming up this afternoon, another crisis situation on the country's public university campuses as an increasing number of students are struggling to either find accommodation or are unable to pay for them. Where are you coming from? Northern region, Tamale. Northern region. Yes, please. You came here and still haven't gotten accommodation on campus? Yes, please. Yeah. So, how are you coping? Where do you stay now? I'm with my uncle at Medina. We'll definitely explore the solutions to this, plus get a reaction from the university. Also in this package, Ghana launches uh, an ambitious plan to end malaria uh, and its infections by 2028. Which is a comprehensive roadmap Charting the coast to a malaria free country. We explore the feasibility of uh, this target here on the polls. And election 2024, the Seven Day Adventist Church, Ghana making a strong case for the amendment of the December 7th general election date as the church serves two separate petitions on the Electoral Commission and also the Attorney General that could potentially change the date of Ghana's presidential elections. So to uh, have December 7, 2024 being a Saturday poses a big challenge to us, especially for those who do not want to go against their religious convictions and yet also want to vote for their candidate. We look at the election and the Sabbath later here on the Pulse. I am blessed to the Pulse as always is brought to you by Global Communities Digni Lu, Affordable Safe Sanitation, when Facebook, YouTube, and MyJoyOnline.com. Join News is independent, fearless, and credible. Well, it's that time of the year again when the country's tertiary institutions welcome thousands of students to uh, pursue various programs on campus. It is a defining period for many students who would have done, uh, of course, their free senior high school policy only to end up with the reality of having to pay accommodation in addition to their tuition and other costs as well. Many parents struggle to cope with the high costs that even in heavily subsidized public universities. This has piled so much unbearable uh, pressure on students and also parents in a way that forces some
to find sinful or immoral ways of survival uh, which filters into the world of work when they have completed school. Uh, so what will be an ideal solution to the emerging crisis uh, situation? This afternoon we speak to students, parents and policymakers uh, and academics as well to find a solution. First though, let's bring you what we know about the numbers heading into our public universities and the potential uh, problems we are facing in terms of accommodation. So you see the distribution of uh, the time lapse of how increasingly we're uh, looking at a surge in the number of uh, students going into the public universities, shooting uh, from somewhere around 375,763 in 2020, all the way to 448,674 in 2023. That's where we are now as a country, and there are a number of factors accounting for this. Well, the situation, as we know, is not different in other public universities. The Vice-Chancellor uh, of the University of Cape Coast, uh, Professor Johnson uh, Nyako Bwampo and also uh, Professor Kukwe Duchum Ayim Bwachi, Vice-Chancellor at Cape Coast Technical University and uh, others also raised concerns in previous interviews with join News. Listen. We all know that education is shared responsibility. The university itself, the government, and then the people, the private people. Fortunately, um, the, the government has set the university up, give us a, a big tract of land. We are having difficulties with encroachment, but we have huge uh, tract of land that we are asking private people to support us, put up um, accommodation for the students. Over the years, people come, they do their presentations, MOUs with them, but they don't come back again. Why don't they come back? Well, I think it's about capital. Normally, they don't have the money. When they have, we have signed the MOU with them, then they use the MOU to secure uh, uh, financial resources to put up the, 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 the building. But they have, I'm sure they have not been uh, successful. But the university, through the supernation scheme, is trying to put something. You know, we have done one before, and this time we are working how to put another um, big uh, hostel facility for our students. That's another area. We are also trying to improve the existing ones. And then other people are also putting up um, hostels within the community. But uh, they should make sure that they do not encroach on our lands because it's important. Because I was a student here in the 80s. We were not as many as we are now. Currently, we have almost 25,000 students on campus, regular students. And we could not even admit the students who applied to the university for admission because of, especially because at that time we linked um, admission to uh, uh, accommodation. And so we were unable to ad uh, admit more students. So there's that uh, uh, potential for the university to grow. And uh, in, in, as we are, the population of Ghana is growing, in the university, the student population is also growing. So therefore, we must also prepare to receive the students, give them the training they need, so that they can contribute meaningfully towards the development of our country. The parent paying the fees is looking for beneficence, mm. is looking for value for money. Mm. And so if we, the TUs, can again prove that when your word comes through the system, be it a diploma or post-dip or BTEC, 
or even masters that we are offering now you know mm -hmm. we are running masters mm -hmm. you know they are on the job you know or they get they are readily employed or they can readily employ some other person so it's 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 it, it calls for a concerted effort government is doing a lot particularly the pre-tertiary level where these stem schools are coming up but we know we can do much better mm. as a group uh, you know the TUs to build the confidence of people so does it does it does it mean that uh, government should be intentional should be deliberate become biased towards the technical vocational education by giving you a lot of funding Absolutely. a lot of development yes. so you become very attractive yeah. and you could be the first port of call yeah. For every people, that, that I think you've said my you've you've echoed my uh, sentiments very accurately, because when we have those things, you know, it makes the convincing easier. For example, someone comes in here and they realize we have only 318 beds. You know, they just look around, and say, "Well, I'm coming back," and they don't come back. They go to an university that gives them accommodation. So something as basic as accommodation. Well, we are in the process of securing some hostels and all of that, but these are real fundamental structures, structural challenges that impede our growth and our acceptability mm. as a co-equal, you know, um, option and not a second-rate option. Well, my colleague, good part of today uh, at the University of Ghana to interact with some of the students and school authorities about the situation uh, and here are some of the interactions. Well, uh, and we'll be getting that for you in a, a G3, of course, uh, trying to uh, encapsulate the uh, situation on campus, uh, including the University of Campus and the fortunate The point about the university, and in this case, the University of Ghana, uh, comes up because this is the premier university, right? Um, admits a significant number of uh, the tertiary students. That's true. Well, uh, I, I earlier spoke to the chair of the heads of uh, the halls at the university, that's Dr. Margaret Amankwapuku, who did mention that, first mm. of all, they do not guarantee yes. accommodation on campus for first-year students. So what they do is that they have an allocation of uh, 3,000 beds, and then it was being fought over by 5,000 students. It's a random uh, allocation thing. You are pre-informed yes. ahead of time that if you want to be accommodated on campus, it's not a guarantee. Yes. So you enter a, a sort of raffle. They do a, a, a random shuffling. Oh, so you're not even certain where you're going to. Exactly. So they do not guarantee you that mm -hmm. you're going to get accommodation on campus. So when they did that, uh, 3,000 students got it. The remaining 2,000 do not have it. So, so they'll have to find they'll have to find their own, uh, you know, sort of accommodation to 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 to, to uh, sleep. Let's talk about the in out 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 in whatever it is policy um, that guarantees right. you as a student to stay on campus for the first year. Right. So the in, that you're on your own basically. Right. So, uh, after the first year. Okay. So the in in out out uh, policy mm -hmm. basically you come level hundred. Right. You know you you are offered accommodation on campus and then in the subsequent years you have to go off campus and in your final year you can come back to right. the uh, school halls and then they did mention that previously mm -hmm. 
first-year students were guaranteed residential permit or you know guaranteed having accommodation in one of the school halls but now it's not like that and some of the students that i spoke with did lament you know bitterly i spoke with one of one of the students who's coming from tamale she's been offered medicine mm -hmm. she has nowhere to stay she has to uh, perch at her uncle's place one also comes from takradi who also has nowhere to stay mm. she's had to look for accommodation on her own and even those that did get accommodation say that there has been an increase and uh, the uh, doc dr margaret tamankwapoku did confirm to me that even the residential halls or the school halls yeah. have witnessed a 33 percent increase mm. in it so uh, they are all culminating into the accommodation crisis right. that is on on the University of Ghana campus. So I believe if the video is ready, we can now hear from some of the students who are lamenting about uh, the accommodation crisis on campus. I mean from? Northern region, Tamale. Northern region. Yes, please. And you came here and still haven't gotten accommodation on campus. Yes, please. Yeah. So how are you coping? Where do you stay now? I'm with my uncle at Medina. So, yeah, I come from there every time. Since yesterday, yes. Since when did you report to campus? Yesterday. Yesterday? Yeah. came to do my registration. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you were told that you don't have access to the residential halls? Yeah, they said so far they are full. Yes, so my uncle is still talking to people to try to get me some. Uh, was it that? When you were applying, they didn't make you aware that even if you are coming from Tamale, you are not guaranteed or assured of getting residential halls or you reported late? They said accommodations are not guaranteed. It's a random allocation something. So if you are not lucky, you might not get. That's what they said. Uh, we are also hearing that even with a random uh, allocation, you have to apply for it. Did you apply for it? No, I didn't because... The time I paid my school fees, I think it was too late. So, yeah, I didn't do that. Okay. So, classes hasn't started yet, correct? I don't know, but some of my friends are saying they have been going for lectures. Yes, that's what they said. So, you have not started lectures because you're not done with your registration or because you're not getting a permanent residency on campus? Both. <laughs> With, with both of them, yes. So how is this affecting you? It's stressful, yes, because they charge a lot with the taxi drivers. It's so stressful, yeah. Where are you coming from? It's Madina. Madina, North Legon. And um, when you came, you wanted to be on campus. You wanted a residential hall. What were you told? Mm, they said it's full. It's a limit. Well, as some of the students, they're expressing their frustration about the situation. I, it's, it's no doubt that indeed it is becoming a crisis. There is a challenge on campus. But what we also want to see is the response from the authorities and yes. school management. Right. Uh, saying that uh, they are offering alternative to the, to the students who have not been offered residential accommodation. So they've uh, prescribed some nearby hostels for them to go to but the students complain that it's too far away so they are unable to go there and they are also warning the students that fraudsters and tricksters have taken advantage of this yeah. promising students 
hostel beds, mm -hmm. new rooms, and uh -huh. all that. So they are issuing a, a caution, sort of, to the students to be very wary of uh, these fraudsters who contact them and say that, look, we have accommodation for you. Come look for it. If you do not get accommodation on campus, you can look elsewhere. Well, let's listen. Escuchas ese rugido. Sientes la experiencia de poder, la emoción de la libertad. Ya estás preparado para vivir tu nueva aventura. Nueva Ram 1500, hecha para vivir. Ram es una marca registrada de FCA US LLC. Now uh, to bring in uh, a number of individuals joining us to help uh, do this discussion. Uh, Nook's President Daniel Pond Chairman uh, is joining us now. Uh, he's on phone. Uh, Laura Kwamejan, lecturer at University of Ghana, uh, and also Peter Nochukotu, member of the uh, Parliament's Education uh, Committee. Thank you all, gentlemen, for joining us. Uh, Daniel, uh, let's start off from the concerns of the students. Do you, first of all, agree that indeed we're having an accommodation crisis on campus? Uh, Daniel, uh, one more time, I hope you can hear me. I'm asking if you agree, first of all, that we're having an, yeah, accommod I can hear you. an accommodation here. crisis on campus. Yeah, I'm here. Good afternoon. Hello, good afternoon. Uh, hi, Daniel. I'm asking you uh, once more, uh, do you agree that indeed we're facing an accommodation crisis uh, across yeah. public universities in Ghana? All right. Um, I'm aware of the accommodation crisis happening on our various campuses and um, I must sincerely submit that um, this has been one of the heartbreaking moments as far as the National Union of Ghana students is concerned because um, over the past five years we've been fighting and working on how we could have an advancement and adjustment when it comes to the hostel prices and the um, fees charge for the various halls because clearly when you look at the numbers, the free SHS is turning out over 1.4 million students, they are turning out the various tertiary institutions, it clearly tells you that there should be a proper plan that could be adapted in absorbing most of our students into the tertiary institutions. If I've been given free senior high school and then graduate with a very good grade, come back to the tertiary and then I can't afford what then becomes the essence of um, um, having me in the tertiary institution. So it's one of the worrying statements. Now, for the past few years, we've been lamenting on how that most of our students come to school and then, because of this accommodation crisis, some of them are sleeping in libraries, others are sleeping on lavish bench, others are moving shelter-skater without even knowing where to lay, lay down their head. So it, it makes academics and other related stuff very difficult for these students. And clearly this year we are experiencing a similar thing, which is very heartbreaking. Most of our students traveling from very far to come and study, and now they don't even know their fate as to whether they'll be getting of residents or not. They come and onto, onto their surprise, they get there and there's no accommodation for them. And these students are not cannot even afford these hostel, um, private hostels out there. Already their whole fees are too high. We are even so deliberating on how they could be reductions and adjustments. And the person doesn't even get to the hall. Not to even talk of the hostel prices, which is like four times the price of the hall. So We've been, we've been preaching this message for long that if indeed our government, which really values education in our country, if we want to absorb a lot of our, a lot of our students into the tertiary um, um, environment 
and also have a lot of things changing. Then we should be able to apply a practicable step as soon as possible because each and every year we talk about wholesale prices. Each and every year we talk about how the price has skyrocketed. But yet we seem not to be seeing anything, anything happening, no changes happening. So um, it's, as a matter of agency, this particular government that really value education in our country should we be really putting plans in place to help solve these challenges. You get to the university and they are saying the reasons why they are increasing the price is uh, uh, linked to the fact that now they are asked to pay utility bills and a whole lot of bills on their own. So, which normal, normally a wholesale price is supposed to cost like 1500 for a hall is now costing over 2000 to 3000 Which a normal student who went through the free assist process cannot even afford. I see. Uh, uh, just hold on for us, uh, Daniel. It's a good time to also bring in uh, lawyer Komijan, uh, lecturer at the University of Ghana, who's joining us now. Uh, and counsel the, the concerns uh, of our students. How do we deal with this problem? Because uh, it's been an age-old problem, especially for um, the University of Ghana. Hello. Yes, I, I hope you can hear me, sir. Yes, I can hear you. Right. I, I was saying uh, thank you for um, inviting me to the show. And also uh, my regards to your listeners. I, I have been around the university system uh, teaching in Legon. This is my 25th year. And I have been a, senior, um, a deputy senior tutor before in Akwafo Hall. So, uh, and I'm still a fellow of Akwafo. I have a, a fair idea of what has gone wrong. It, it's the, the young man who spoke, I think, spoke very well. We just saw it coming. And as a country, this is one of our collective failures. It's pure and simple. What can be done? Yes, there is a, there is a backlog of, of students coming through the system from all the frees. So there was the free basic and now there is free assets, and people are even talking about free tertiary. So all the frees are bringing the numbers. And the people who brought the frees did not plan for the numbers when they were bringing them along. So the system has clogged, and it's become a very serious problem to the extent that last week there was balloting at the University of Ghana, balloting for accommodation. And this is not the only time it has happened. So virtually, we are doing lotto for accommodation. If you are lucky, you get. If you are not lucky, you don't get. Now, at least I know that these public universities have tried to engage in a public-private partnership kind of arrangement, allowing private sector people to build hostels on the campuses. But... The flip side of it is the private sector people want to recoup their investment. So they have to charge economic rates for their hostels. That brings the question of affordability. So maybe what should happen is we should encourage more private sector investment in hostel development. Those who can reasonably afford should be encouraged to go to the private sector hostels and the ones who are really not able to afford, you allocate the 
public or what we call the traditional house to those people. Uh, but that's a, that's a problem relating to cost and how they could you know, get return on investment early. Yes. So the universities can also meet them halfway by giving them access to the land on very reasonable terms and providing a longer term duration for the leases. So if you give someone a lease for 50 years and it's subject to maybe peppercorn rent, so the investors should not seek to make money from the rents. I mean, give them the lands at peppercorn rent. What is the objective of the university? To ensure that your students get accommodation. So the investors should provide the land at reasonable rates or best peppercorn rates. Then the Republic of Ghana should find a way maybe to encourage the Ghana Infrastructure Investment Fund, for example, to provide long-term financing for people to develop the hostels. Because at the current rate of interest in our commercial banks, I doubt if anybody would take a loan from the current system, 40% or 38% to build a hostel accommodation. You probably have to charge through the roof to recover your investment. So you need, I mean, by now I am expecting that we should have had a national consultative conference on, on this subject because it, it's around the country, it's around the campus now. And you can somebody worry, the first time into a carrying their carrying their bags and baggages and sitting inside a hall, nowhere to go. I mean, it's we have seen these things for years. And when you encounter these situations and you are helpless, it, it diminishes you as a as a human being. Uh, let's hear from uh, Peter Notukutu, a member of uh, Parliament on serving on the Education Committee. Uh, and Honourable, you've been listening to the uh, conversation as to what's happening on campus for the very first time. We're, we're seeing balloting for accommodation on the University of Ghana campus. Um, from, from the policy angle, uh, what are you considering to do as you know, the par Parliamentary Committee on Education, at least just to mount pressure on the Education Ministry and other stakeholders to, to, to bring about some changes in terms of accommodation on campus. And a good day to my fellow Kwafo. Uh, uh, the issue is that uh, since the introduction of uh, cost sharing, in the uh, running and provision of uh, tertiary education in the country, uh, we have had the challenge of uh, getting accommodation for all students uh, on campus. Uh, what has happened is that uh, over the years, we have failed as a nation to make sure that uh, once we had increasing number of students, we should be expanding our facilities especially that of uh, accommodation for students on the various uh, campuses of uh, the universities and other tertiary institutions in the country. So we have failed in that direction. I remember last year the students complained to us about the high cost of accommodation uh, being offered by the private sector who have uh, put out facilities on the university campuses. 
and we had to come in to talk to these uh, uh, developers and then the owners of the facilities to make sure that they make accommodation uh, available and then affordable to the students. Uh, we know government alone cannot do what is uh, expected uh, at this moment, but there should be a pragmatic uh, procedure or approach to making sure that uh, we increase the number of uh, accommodation facilities in the various schools. If we take University of Ghana, for instance, but for the private sector involvement, I don't think uh, 30% of students uh, on the campus of University of Ghana will get uh, accommodation. Yeah. As a committee, this matter has come before us. And uh, what we have told uh, the minister is that uh, as a policy, government should make sure that they provide funds to those who are ready, the private sector, to put up uh, these accommodation facilities or hostel facilities in the schools at a very affordable rate of uh, interest. Even if you give them interest-free loan, as uh, it's important, they can put up the accommodation for students and then will negotiate the rate of uh, payment and even the rent that students will pay. But where they have to go to the open market to go and then take the facility at a very high rate, how will they be able to recoup uh, whatever they have invested, pay the interest and make a, a profit? So we have made that proposal to the ministry uh, to take up with government. Government should look for some sums of money for even the investors themselves so that they can also put up uh, these facilities for students so that uh, they can uh, have their peace of mind and study. Until we do that, it will be very difficult to get accommodation uh, easily available for students. And it is very, very disturbing because when you visit the campus and you see the dilemma in which, especially the first years, find themselves, uh, it is unfortunate. The in, out, out, in is also not working because of the large numbers. So as uh, uh, the lecturer said, they had to toss for them, which uh, I think uh, is not the best. So for me, uh, government must uh, come up with a program that uh, will assist uh, the developers so that they can put our hostels and then make it affordable to the students. Otherwise, we'll be failing in the provision of uh, quality education and at the tertiary level. And I was just asking there if there are any measures you're taking at the parliamentary level just to try and engage government on this. We uh, deal directly with the Ministry of Education, and that's what we have made known to the minister when we met the various uh, providers of. Los mejores viajes nacen en la carretera, pero este comenzará en tu mente. ¿Escuchas ese rugido? ¿Sientes la experiencia de poder? ¿La emoción de la libertad? Ya estás preparado para vivir tu nueva aventura. Nueva Ram 1500. Hecha para vivir. Ram es una marca registrada de FCA US LLC. Hostel uh, facilities, especially on the campus of the uh, University of Ghana, where we had complaint of the exorbitant uh, uh, rates at which... Uh, they were being given the accommodation. And we made that a suggestion to the ministry. Uh, we expect them to take our consent to cabinet or to the president for necessary action. So until that is done, as a committee, 
we don't have uh, that mandate to do anything else. We are only to recommend and we expect the relevant authorities through the Ministry of Education to take up the matter. Um, let's go back to Daniel. Uh, and Daniel, I'm looking at the way forward now. Uh, what demands would you want to place before the authorities? And as MOOCs, are you also taking some initiatives to tackle the problem? Measures we are, we, are, we are pleading that needs to be put in place. One of our issues has always been with the fact that the funds of funding for education has not been capped. The main statutory fund that is supposed to be funding most of the activities happening on our various campuses. But trust me, now if, I, if we tell the private man to still come around to build the hostels and everything, it's his own business. You get it. And normally there's no proper regulation when it comes to the amount of fees that should be charged. Good enough if we get various universities to reduce the terms and conditions they are giving these private hostels to build more hostels on the various campuses will go a long way in helping. In doing so, we are so pleased on government. If probably you could look at the uncapping of get funds. In the few past years, we could have get funds putting up a lot of the traditional halls on most of the campuses were, were, were put forth by the intervention of get funds. And now these main statutory funds that are supposed to be funding most of our educational activities have now been capped, making it very extremely difficult for universities to be putting up these structures. On a normal day, we should have had a lot of hostels or halls on the various university campuses. If that happens, at a point, it will then inform the now the private individual who is putting up private hostels to also adjust their payments because now all students are now moving to the university um, halls or university hostels. If that is done, go and go a long way in helping reduce a lot of things. It's clearly happening on um, KNUST campus. Now, the second thing we want to ask, uh, we want to recommend, especially with the University of Ghana. Now, when it comes to KNUST, um, the whole application, it's online. So there's a duration that is being given for each and everybody to apply. They are not using the quote-unquote, the local system where um, randomly you are just being given a hall. Right. The halls are there, you apply. So when there are no available rooms, you clearly get through that this particular hall. Okay. So that you could then think through and then find out the, the plans and measures you are going to put in place in getting a hostel, a different hostel. Okay. But here is the case, that structure has not been implemented yet. So you just come to school and out of the blue you get to know that you didn't really get um, a hostel or a hall. And you've not made any prior preparations towards that, putting out a very tight corner. So we are pleading that if University of Ghana and other universities could adapt this, that same system, as you are putting plans in place, Okay. Uh, and for you, uh, lawyer Kwame Jan, uh, the solution and the way forward? From the previous speakers, we are all aligned as to what should be done. We need to increase the number of available accommodations. But we also have to revisit the question of the residential university system, which we inherited from the colonial masters. Most of us who also went to graduate school abroad, you don't have these large residential universities, I mean, in, in most of the countries. So now that there is mobility in terms of access to transportation and so on, we should revisit that concept. 
Is it the way to go in terms of aggregating a large number of students living on the same campus as their residence and their place of learning, or you begin to provide the more places of learning and allow people to live at different locations and come to school? So that is something we have to look at as a, as a country. We want to continue with the old scheme of the residential type of university, or we go the way that most of these other universities in other countries are going. We have to, as a nation, look at these things again. All right. Uh, for you, Honorable Peter Anotukoti. Yeah, the way to uh, find a solution to this is the suggestion made by the last speaker. We need to look at uh, these, our boarding facilities, even right from secondary schools in the country. Uh, these are things we inherited from our colonial masters. And uh, there's a time for us, or this is a time for us to take a second look at it. Uh, but in the meantime, we need to make sure that uh, before we debordernize or make these our institutions uh, not residential, as uh, it happens in other developed countries, I think we need to make sure that uh, we get the facilities available for them. Government, as I say, must provide the facilities, the resources now. Uh, give, get funds the free hand to make sure that they give money to universities to complete the facilities that they've started and have gotten uh, stagnated for over five or ten years now mm. to make sure that uh, those facilities are completed for use by students. I'm grateful uh, to you all for, for your time uh, here on the polls. Now, as part of efforts to eradicate malaria in Ghana, government has launched the National Malaria Elimination Strategic Plan. The plan, amongst other things, aims at reducing malaria mortality by 90% uh, by the year 2028 and to reduce malaria incidence by 50% uh, going into that year, launching the strategic plan. The sector minister, uh, Kukwetua Menu, expressed his optimism that Ghana has the capacity to eradicate the disease considering the successes of the national malaria control program. Malaria has remained a priority disease under the government's policies and initiatives and has traveled several progressive milestones to ensure high coverage of traveled, high coverage of evidence-based interventions to combat malaria through the National Malaria Control Program and now the National Malaria Elimination Program. The control program, for instance, aimed to achieve the following goals by 2020. 100% of communities will have access to community-based treatment for uncomplicated malaria. 90% of caretakers and parents will be able to recognize early symptoms and signs of malaria. And three, 90% of children under five years of age with fever will receive an appropriate anti-malaria treatment within 24 hours. On the other hand, the National Malaria Elimination Program was established to reduce malaria morbidity and mortality rates by 75% by 2020, using 2012 as a baseline. 
Some of the key interventions and strategies implemented by the elimination program include distributing long-lasting insecticidal nets nationwide through health facilities, communities, and schools. Rolling out guidelines for malaria case management, malaria in pregnancy, laboratory diagnosis of malaria, and anti-malaria drug policy in all our regions. Conducting supervisory visits to public and private health facilities, monthly data reviews, routine data quality, quality audits, and monitoring of activities of epidemiological sentinel sites. Indoor residual spraying in targeted districts. In 2000, we committed to the Abuja Declaration on rolling back malaria in Africa and the Millennium Development Goals, MDGs. And finally, in 2006, we also committed to malaria elimination in Africa. Distinguished. Ladies and gentlemen, we have made significant progress in reducing the burden of malaria in the last decades. With smart investments, strong and enduring partnerships, a dedicated workforce, and effective leadership, we have reached millions with life-saving interventions. Malaria-related deaths at all ages reduced from 3,889 in the year 2008 to 155 by the end of 2022, which is about a 96% reduction. Director General of the Ghana Health Service, Dr. Patrick Kumapati, also stressed that the negative socioeconomic impact of malaria makes it imperative for the country to eradicate the disease like other countries have done. That the socioeconomic impact of malaria has been said already is significant. The disease imposes a heavy economic burden on households, the health system, and the national economy. Malaria related illnesses and deaths lead to loss, productivity, absenteeism from work and school, increased health care costs, as well as personal costs. This can result in reduced economic growth and development. It is therefore the desire and wish of the government that the two committees will help avert the above, imp the above impact by working hard to support the service and all other stakeholders to eliminate the disease. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, let us all leave here with the conviction that all hands will be on deck as was shown to ensure malaria-free country. Let's remember that zero malaria starts from me and you. We all have a role to play, and I will urge you to put on your best effort to make it possible as the government also does its part. We have done it before for guinea worm eradication, and we can also do so for malaria. Or representing the President, Presidential Advisor on Health, Dr. Ntia Sarek, mentioned that this plan uh, wouldn't just sit on the shelves, adding that government has the political will to ensure the full implementation of the strategic plan. A more robust partnership is required to end malaria once and for all in Ghana. I'm abreast of the multi-sectorial engagements 
that culminated in the development of this National Malaria Elimination Strategic Plan. I'm happy about this effort and commend the various sectors, ministries, and agencies who avail themselves to contribute to this document. The National Strategic Plan will be a guiding document which seeks to build on the progress the country has made so far. The plan, which is built on inclusiveness, sustainability, empowerment, and resilience, clearly defines the strategies necessary to accelerate progress from malaria control to malaria elimination. I therefore call on all sectors, ministries, agencies, both public and private sectors, to fully take ownership of the document and together work with the Ministry of Health and the Ghana Health Service to fully implement the plan activities. The approach the nation intends to use is a sub-national elimination approach to achieve malaria elimination in a stepwise manner. Ghana is characterized by varying disease levels elimination, which will target areas of lower malaria levels to those of higher levels. I'm confident that this plan will guide the nation into zero malaria. I know it is a monumental tax. However, considering the progress made so far in recent years and the efficiency of the interventions at our disposal, we are well able to accomplish the goal we have outlined ourselves as a country. I take this opportunity, therefore, to assure you of government's commitment in providing the political will and the resources to support the deployment and implementation of the various strategies and elim elimination activities. <clears throat> government is ever prepared to play the necessary leadership role for malaria elimination in Ghana. In launching this path to elimination, private sector involvement is very imperative. In additional, addition to government support, private industry investment is critical in realizing the malaria elimination goal and to help build stronger health systems. Innovative mechanisms are required to mobilize resources domestically and internationally to augment existing resource streams, including donor contributions, thus closing the national funding gap which the program manager spoke about. Well, Dr. Kizia Mal is program uh, manager for the National Malaria Elimination Program, joining us in studio now. Thank you so much uh, for spending some time with us uh, here on the Pulse. The agenda is Agenda 2028, but how are you working towards achieving that? Thank you very much for having me. As um, the presidential advisor said, this is a subnational elimination approach. What we've done is to zone the country. Escuchas ese rugido? Sientes la experiencia de poder? La emoción de la libertad? Ya estás preparado para vivir tu nueva aventura. Nueva Ram 1500, hecha para vivir. Ram es una marca registrada de FCA US LLC. To fall based on the malaria transmission, some parts. Um, especially, uh, specifically the greater Accra where we are sitting is the areas with very low malaria and then we have other areas that have low malaria, moderate ma transmission malaria and then high transmission. 
So based on these zones, we are going to um, add on interventions and then gradually um, reduce malaria or eliminate malaria stepwise. It's not a one-time approach. It's a process that will take us some years, but we are starting now. Uh, practically, what are some of the activities you are going to be engaged in? Uh, because we know uh, that um, education has been a major concern. The, the fact that people are still unaware of what to do, how to keep the environment clean. What, what more steps will you be taking in the coming years? So to enhance the education further, what we are also going to do is tackle the mosquito a bit more. As you where we started tackling the, the breeding sites of the mosquitoes to kill the baby mosquitoes in by spring. What we intend to do is to work with other ministries more now to reduce the number of breeding sites. In addition to tackling the vector more, we also intend to tackle the parasites more, and we're going to do that by expanding our chemotherapeutic um, interventions. What I mean as interventions that require taking medicine. Yeah. So um, currently we do some preventive interventions that require taking medicine like um, intermittent preventive treatment for pregnant women, for children under five in some regions. We intend to scale that up so that it's not only children under five um, um, that would take those medications. It's, currently we do it for four times. Now we, we are going this year, we are going five times. We hope to increase the number of children. We hope to try that in school children. For the areas where we have very low malaria, I hope to be able to do it in the entire population and even expand the malaria vaccine to cover the whole country. Uh, is it Cape Verde or you know, one of the countries, of course, uh, that, that's very big news that they are almost dealing or eradicating um, uh, ma malaria. How is that serving as an inspiration to Ghana, for instance, we are, uh, towards painting our targets? We are so inspired because it's an African country. Yes, it is an island, so it might, might be easier, right. and it's a smaller country, but it's an inspiration for us as Africans to show that we can do it. Kivet becomes a third country in Africa to be declared malaria-free, showing that if we put in the effort that is needed, even the current interventions can help us get there. So how are we faring as a country? As a country, um, as we showed today, we've seen a great reduction in the number of deaths recorded in our health facilities. Now we are recording just around 150 deaths in our health facility. Of course, every death is, shouldn't happen, and we are working towards at least by 2028 that we should be counting deaths in very single, single digits or even zero. Um, we've also seen a reduction in the malaria parasite prevalence in children under five who are mostly affected by malaria. Now we have um, the rate is 8.6 percent, so it means if you take 100 children, we have nine of them being positive for malaria as compared to um, about 10 years ago when we had over 25 of them being positive for malaria. Uh, if there's a message for the people of Ghana and what we need to know about what your outfit is doing and what you equally need them to do to support this fight against malaria, what would that be? So what we are saying is that malaria elimination is possible. It's a daunting tax, but it's something we can do if we all put our hands on the deck. That will require that you would ensure that you don't create breeding sites for mosquitoes. You take your medication if you are sick, use any of the preventive interventions, and let's all work together to eliminate mm. uh, the, the point about you know, uh, policy interventions and how that can also deal with the challenge. Um, access to treatment, 
and also the ability of people in remote areas and rural uh, communities to be able to afford these services. How are you working on pushing these reforms as well? So um, currently, in fact, malaria is the number, the highest expenditure for the national health insurance. Mm. So when it comes to treatment, it is covered by the national health insurance once you, you are registered. So we encourage more and more people to be registered. And most of the preventive interventions, like the use of mosquito nets and then indoor residual spraying, we distribute to them for free. It's, it's free. It's quite expensive, but people get it for free because right. of how we see important malaria. Um, going forward, 2028, is that the only target we have? Or perhaps it might even come earlier than before? So in the current plan, we have three, three goals. The first one is to make sure that we get to near zero deaths. And the second one is to get um, a reduction in the cases that we are seeing by 50%. And the third one is to make sure that at least 21 districts in the greater Accra are eliminated of malaria. We get malaria elimination in those districts. Okay, uh, we're hoping for the best. Uh, probably you have a final message for our viewers. So please support us to help everybody mm. because when I get malaria, you're at risk. When you get malaria, I am at risk. So this is for all of us. Help us to eliminate malaria. Dr. Kizia Mom, thank you uh, for your time. And you're still with us here on the Pulse on the Join News channel. Uh, we're getting back shortly with some more stories. We'll be looking at um, the December 7 elections and the possibility that uh, the elections might be postponed due to a petition coming through from the SDA Church. We'll tell you about their concerns shortly. medical school I can take off you too. Oh, Fifi, is that why you're looking all moody? Then I have some good news for you. The College of Medicine and Allied Sciences, COMAS, Accra, Ghana, is a degree-awarding institution, and they offer Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery using the Graduate Entry Medical Programs, Bachelor of Diagnostic Imaging, and BSc Health Information Management. All these programs are accredited by GTEC. Their bilingual curriculum prepares you to consult in French. But I'm worried about admissions. Admissions are ongoing. Contact us on Facebook or on Instagram at info.comas or call us on 0208-456-556 or send them an email info at comas.edu.gh. Comas, the citadel of a holistic professional medical education. Daddy? Daddy? This tank is big! Yes, that's true. It can store a lot of water. That's so true. Wow! It has a working surface on it. Mm-hmm. That's so true. I can see it. 
With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Charles Barkley in a pickup game. We'll take Barkley. Ha! First pick! Sorry, kids! Yep, even easier than that. With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? Okay, here's the plan. Pass me the ball every time. This is banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One NA member FDIC. That is so true, my daughter. But it's father, it's spoiler. That's not true. But why? Hey! <laughs> Syntex was the first to introduce double layer tanks in Ghana. Syntex again was the first to introduce white inner layers in Ghana. Syntex gives you the biggest warranty seven years. No matter your water needs, Syntex is the answer. Syntex tank. Are you strong? Are you tough? machine crashing tons of cocoa pots within minutes this could have taken hours and potentially days to finish if it was done manually the innovative cocoa pot breaker machine was created by Daniel Chumisi and Elizabeth Amwa who were both trained at the Design and Technology Institute both Daniel and Elizabeth hail from cocoa farming communities and understand the challenges with manual crashing of cocoa pots. Coming from the cocoa farming community, I remember sometimes um, when our wards harvest their cocoa pots, they need to go from house to house to go and ask other farmers for helping hands. And sometimes when we get to the farm and the pots are too much, um, a way to motivate the farmers to be able to break a lot of pots is to uh, motivate them with stuff like sardine. So they place the sardine on top of the cuckoo pot so that it will trigger the farmers to break a lot of pots. On the Joy Business Farm this Wednesday on TV, radio, online and on the ground, 
the Joy Business Fund, brought to you by Ecobank, the Pan-African Bank, and MTN. What are we doing today? Thanks for staying with us. The Seventh-day Adventist Church uh, is making a strong case for an amendment of the December 7 elections. The church, in separate petitions, first to the Electoral Commission, says the elections would have to be moved from the conventional December 7 because the date falls on a Saturday, which will uh, conflict with the Sabbath, a holy day dedicated for the worship of God. The church says the first or second Tuesday of November this year will be more convenient to promote inclusive democracy. Well, I've been interacting with the Public Affairs and Religious Liberty Director at the church uh, who spoke to us on a number of issues. Global church, and so we have the Ghana branch here. Globally, we have over 20 million. In Ghana, we have about half a million members. Uh, people know us for uh, worshipping on Saturday. So that's just one of the things we do. We are also a health-conscious people. So we have a temperance message insisting that our bodies are God's temple. So we have a responsibility to keep it. We also, one of the key beliefs which differentiates us from other Christian denominations is also what we believe about death. We believe that when you're dead, you're dead. You don't go into heaven looking down below on your loved ones. So that's another area where we differ. But fundamentally, we believe Christ died for us, and it's by his merit that we have salvation. On December 7, Ghanaians will be heading to the post to choose their parliamentary and presidential uh, leaders. Looking at what's happening this year it appears history is repeating itself in 1996 the elections were held on a saturday and this year as well the general elections will be held on a saturday coincidentally that's the day that you worship it will obviously be a challenge to your members isn't it See? absolutely and that's a problem that's a problem for us um in 1996 Ghana, 7 December fell on a Saturday. And Adventists were torn between going to church and voting. Admittedly, religion and politics are two very uh, passionate uh, items. So when you ask somebody to choose either or, you create a problem if they want both. And that's why it's a problem for 7 day Adventists. Who vote. We don't we are not a people who don't vote. We Escuchas ese rugido? Sientes la experiencia de poder? La emoción de la libertad? Ya estás preparado para vivir tu nueva aventura. Nueva Ram 1500, hecha para vivir. Ram es una marca registrada de FCA US LLC. Vote. And so we want to vote. So to uh, have December 7, 2024 being a Saturday poses a big challenge to us especially for those who do not want to go against their religious convictions and yet also want to vote for their candidates. Uh, voting is a civic responsibility. Honoring the Sabbath 
is a godly responsibility. That's how we see it. Um, as enshrined in the Ten Commandments, he says you have six days to do all your work, but you have to rest on the Sabbath day. And you know, uh, sometimes people don't understand, but in that commandment, it says that the Sabbath day is the Sabbath of thy Lord. If it were mine, I would decide on what to do with it. But it's God's, and he says on this day, don't do this or do this. So that's where the conflict comes up. And that's why we think that uh, if there's anything that can be done to change the date, it will help our members. And now we know that you've sent your petition to the Electoral Commission detailing your concerns and what it is, the challenges you have about uh, December 7th and the need to either move the date to November or try and get a, a date that will not be a Saturday. Have you taken any other step to raise your concerns to the state and to put across your demands? I think we've started as a vote advocacy since 2021. Uh, in, December, uh, in 1996, the initiative to have a change or have some special dispensation started rather late. So we left it to members to decide whether to vote or not. So with that as a background, we thought that let's start it early. So in June 2021, we actually had an appearance with the President of the Republic and placed before him our concerns. So he also raised the constitutional issues that may come up and the steps that obviously gave his support because uh, his government or no government will want to deny its citizens the right to vote. Then in December 2021, there was an opportunity for us to present a memo to parliament, which we did also reiterating the same points, asking for a date change. We followed that up subsequently by writing to the Electoral Commission in February last year, indicating or making a proposal for a change. What we were proposing was not for a definite a date change, but we were proposing a day so we proposed in our submission to the EC the first uh, Tuesday or a Tuesday in November or December of 2024. Now we did this uh, against the background that in our recent past, 2011, there were attempts, there were recommendations that there needed to be uh, some election day changes. In uh, 2015, the commission, the late Atamils put together, also made recommendations. Our Transition Act also advocates for an election day change. And then in 2016, there was actually a bill in Parliament, which unfortunately did not garner the majority vote, also asking for a change from December to November, but uh, most parliamentarians thought that EC could not organize an election a month earlier. So we are riding on the backs of these earlier attempts. But in our case, the difference is that or our addition to this call is that we are asking for a Tuesday in either December or November.
So categorically speaking, what are the demands that you've placed before uh, the Electoral Commission? The, the word demand is very serious. So I would say it's a petition we put before it. In February, we wrote asking for a meeting. So we met in June, the Electoral Commission. And the same proposal that because we want to ensure our members enjoy their civic right, we are asking if in their consideration of a date change, instead of just saying a change from December to November 7th, we are asking them to consider the day, which is a Tuesday. So that's the proposal we put before the Electoral Commission, that if they're considering a date change, we would ask that they use the Tuesday. And interestingly, if you've paid attention to the, the by-elections uh, that we've had last year, and the recent digital uh, assembly elections were all held on Tuesday. Okay. There's another challenge that is likely to emerge. Ghana, looking at the demographics, has its, over 70% of its population being Christian, except that the church, your church, is in the minority group. There is this fear also that um, if your demands are granted, it will open the floodgates to other religious groupings, other religious bodies to also make demands for an amendment of the day. There are other faiths that also worship on a weekday. Have you taken all of this into consideration and don't you feel that your demand would rather divide than unify all of us as a country? No. And that's why in our approach, we, uh, and I think I forgot to mention that, we even, we met with the chief imam because our uh, advocacy is that it should not fall on any religious day, Saturday, Friday, or Sunday. Even though the others might not raise an issue as we are doing, it's still a conflict. Because sometimes you stand in the queue on election day for a long time before you get to cast your vote. And so that's what we're advocating for. We've met with the chief imam. We've written to all the religious uh, major organizations. We've met with all the political parties as well. So it's not just demanding a change for Seventh-day Adventists, but we think that it should not be held on any religious day. And our choice of Tuesday is also because, traditionally, along the coast, most fisher folks don't go fishing on Tuesday. So we think that it allows for, it caters for everybody's interest. Yeah. The fear is that you are... And our member of parliament for Soto Manya has uh, responded to the grievances of his constituents in the first edition of the AM on Wheels, a new segment of uh, the Joy News AM show. He underscored that the work is underway to resolve all issues raised by residents in the Santa Maria area during the interview with Suti Abochi, Dr. Domako, justifying the government's imposition of a 15% VAT on some residential consumers of electricity. That's more. The Sotom Anya constituency was featured in the first episode of AM on Wheels, a new segment of the Joy News AM show which seeks to bridge the gap between constituents and their parliamentary representatives.
Some residents of the constituency gathered in Santa Maria to express their grievances, with the highlight being the dilapidated community bridge between Awoshi and Santa Maria, which poses life-threatening risks to students and traders alike in the community. Looking at the state of um, the footbridge here, I will commend Dimona School. They constructed this footbridge in the year 2016. Um, up to date, uh, we haven't had any improvement on this. And it's very dangerous looking at the amount of people, the number of people who used to assess this footbridge day in and day out from Monday to Sunday, looking at the school children because their schools are closer here. And this bridge connects Santa Maria and that of Awoshi. So this morning, my worry is to appeal to the central government to come to our aid and then, uh, you know, reconstruct it for us. A vehicle bridge will be better for us. So all the vehicles connecting from various junctions and that of Santa Maria and Awoshi can use this very bridge. In fact, the nature of the bridge is very, very terrible, especially when it rains. In fact, uh, it serves as a, a main uh, bridge that everybody the community use. So we are just appealing to the government to come in to assist us because the situation is very, very terrible. <laughs> This bridge has been there for like about eight years now and it has been helping us get into school. But now recently it starts broken down and can't allow us to come to school early. We like this, we have morning classes and we miss it since we are at Elang and the others. So we ask that you help us reconstruct this bridge. After gathering these concerns, the AM on Wheels team caught up with the MP for the constituency, Dr. Adumaku Kisi. Now, while responding to these grievances, the MP for Soutu Manya underscored that he's working with other governmental heads and agencies to resolve the situation. The drains issues, or let me say bridge issues in Anya Soutum are quite a lot. Koda, as well as AWARE, which is the Coastal Development Authority, uh, which is also helping us with some drains in this constituency. So, so it isn't that I am only aware. Governmental heads and agencies are, at, at the moment, aware of our plight. Um, and we have a very also dynamic assembly uh, under the leadership of uh, Honorable Bashir Mohammed. Uh, who is also, let me almost borrow his word, more than 100% aware of these issues. Now, it comes to one thing. We need to schedule these projects and then also find the appropriate funding, uh, whether government of Ghana, whether internally generated funds. So, so that has to be uh, a roundtable discussion. And, and it is not something that is amiss. Mind you, a lot of monies go into these bridges. We can't just do a tiny bit project, uh, you know, which then will be broken down and redone. During the interview, while reacting to government imposition of 15% VAT on some residential consumers of electricity, Dr. Adomako justified the act on the basis that it is better than having no light on at all. Times really are tough, but I believe that to pay a little and have my electricity on, I mean, that is what we have to do. 
pay a little so that you have your light on. It's better than no light. So I encourage Ghanaians, it is difficult. We all have to share a little, a pinch here and there, so that we can all have our light on. And For Joy News, I'm Sweetie Abochi, reporting from Soutum Anya Constituency. Charge of administration at the Ghana Police Service, EOP Christian Teteo Huna has warned police officers to stay away from bribery. The police administration uh, and the administrator made the call during a short ceremony at the police headquarters to debrief officers after their Christmas operations. COP Teteo Huna says officers uh, and their ability to stay away from these gestures will help improve the integrity of the Ghana Police Service. My colleague James Aveji was there. Now, the Ghana Police Service has part of its strategies to ensure the safety of the public during the Christmas festivity deployed officers on the streets across the country. Now, after working day and night, uh, the Inspector General of Police, Dr. George Akufo-Dampari, today met with the officers in a quick debriefing exercise at the Emergency Command Center here at the uh, police headquarters. Uh, the event started uh, with the IGP giving the opportunity to the officers who have been on the street uh, to share their experiences with him, as well as share with him some recommendations they think would be relevant to improving such activities. When they dispatch it in, in our duty, they advise us on extortion. And then when you go there, they like to be giving us money. But by God's grace, we always reject this kind of money. Our Enable IGP was with us wherever we are. And I think we, the recruits, we, the J constables, got to a point we were very tired. But because of the presence of the IGP, each and every one of us was so excited. COP Awune, who is the Director General of the National Patrols Department, also urged the police to use this opportunity as a starting ground to deepen their relationship with the Escuchas ese rugido? Sientes la experiencia de poder, la emoción de la libertad. Ya estás preparado para vivir tu nueva aventura. Nueva Ram 1500, hecha para vivir. Ram es una marca registrada de FCA US LLC. General public as well as up their respect for the public. One of the key points that always some members of the public will complain about us is the way we disrespect them. So if refusing to take money from members of the public, the second point we must endeavor to do is to begin to respect members of the public and treat them with the respect that they deserve. Remember that we are public servants. We are servants of the public. So how can a servant disrespect the master? Meanwhile, Director General of the Ghana Police Service in charge of administration, COP Christian Tete Yohunu, warned police officers to stay away from bribery. The assurance given by the men is that all the attempt to bribe them, they rejected them. And that is kudos to them. And we want to tell the other policemen who are home and their various places are prepared to go to work, who are not part of these galaxy stars, 
they should take the example from these people. That whenever they will be on duty, they should also copy the same example and make sure that they reject anything given to them. And when we continue to do this, I tell you, a time will come when they start rating, and it has already started, that they are rating in terms of corruption, Ghana police, they will never come at all. So we are urging all of you, what we have started, and I'm telling you that never do anything for you. It is a curse. So don't receive it. And shame those people to bribe you and then continue to get focused on your work. Now the Inspector General of Police himself, Dr. George Akufo-Dampari, then used the opportunity to urge the officers to work hard to maintain the relationship they have built with the public in a short period of time as he used the opportunity to appeal to the public to support the Ghana Police Service become one of the, I mean, the respected institutions in the sub-region and beyond. We also want to thank the good people of Ghana for accommodating our short force and continue to constructively criticize us for us to use our sense of guilt and shame to continue to be better, so that we will continue to strive to become the best institution in the country and a reference point for the rest of Africa and beyond. The whole of the exercise came to an end here with the IGP, George Akufo-Dampari himself and members of the Police Management Board going around to, I mean, give cheers to the officers one after the other amid high morale singing of morale songs by the officers uh, in order to appreciate the opportunity given them by the IGP to serve the public in a way they describe as a one-in-a-lifetime opportunity. From the police headquarters here in Accra, my name is James Savage reporting for Joy News. to the economy because there will be no haircut on the 5.4 billion US dollars of uh, bilateral debts expected to be restructured. These are uh, some of the terms joining us as picked uh, from the official creditor uh, committee and uh, China as well as the uh, France uh, co-chairing Ghana's official creditor committee. Uh, we know the agreement reached uh, with the committee is key to unlocking uh, some more funding from the three billion US dollar international monetary fund uh, bailout package. Uh, the country will also re engage with the international bondholders from next week as it seeks to build on the momentum of last week's deal to restructure some 5.4 billion US dollars bilateral debt. Finance Minister Ken Oferata is expected uh, also in China next week and tells Joy News the agreement gives government space to address some of the economic defects. We went through a very difficult and sacrificial exercise with the debt exchange program. So there's no question in people's minds that Ghana has done its part, you know, in very difficult environments. Uh, and therefore it's incumbent um, for people to come to a certain realization that we also um, signal um, um, a new beginning uh, for how international architecture should begin to look um, at countries such as ours um, uh, and the goodwill that 
um, the government and the country has built over these years, uh, I think maybe you should attest to it. Of course, um, um, colleagues at the ministry work incredibly hard um, to make sure that uh, we'll fulfill you know, the, the review issues and Parliament was very generous with us this year uh, in terms of passing the revenue bills and also the appropriation in good time which the President assented to um, on the 29th of December. Um, so I think it's been a collective effort uh, and a clarity on um, the goal uh, and therefore of course there are quite a number of people invested in this thing not happening uh, but making sure that the work that needs to be done um, is done. And, and I think it's um, really an acknowledgement to all of us as a country um, that we are thought of differently and therefore when people sit, uh, they need to consider the Ghana case in a special way. Talk about this don't being rich with external creditors. I mean, we've had about uh, no haircut principal interest, had about uh, paying something after five years. What is in this deal for Ghana going forward now that we've reached this agreement with these external bilateral creditors? So you're talking about the euro bonds, etc. You know, for, 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 for the bilateral creditors, in terms of the deal that you have reached with them, yeah. what is Ghana given to um, get these guys on board? Well, first of all, there's actually quite a bit of a miracle. And as you know, the, the cut-off date has always been sort of March 2020. Um, this was really extended to 2022 uh, December, which is just great. Um, so everybody can now be a part of this, and we can get into bilateral negotiations um, with, with, with each one. Um, I think it gives us um, um, some leeway. Um, the next three years with regards to um, servicing um, of, of the loans that we have, and that gives us space um, for our own fiscal space to be able to um, to do to insist on the type of development um, that that we want. Um, what we have now is uh, it gives enough financial assurance um, for the IMF to sit. Uh, we now are going to take our time. Um, to get into the nitty-gritties of the MOU. Mm -hmm. And so that's what is ahead of us. But at least the major hurdle of them realizing um, a holistic um, timesheet to us has been achieved. Mm -hmm. And we'll now work with them mm -hmm. into the details um, of that. So does the preliminary timesheet include the, the no cut on the principal and the interest and then the fact that it's still a freeze uh, after four years before we start paying something? As well. I think those broad parameters, you know, are in there, and um, I, um, I really don't want to be drawn into the details, details because those are really going to change. But what it does give us is that it gives us momentum um, to now proceed a lot more aggressively with our eurobond investors and commercial creditors. Um, so from Monday, uh, we'll have a team that is now going to begin those discussions. So now it means that you are ready to go to the board because the IMF had always argued that what they were looking for was that financial insurance. Now that this has been reached, yeah. are you ready to go to the board? And is it now on the 19th of uh, January that the board... That That's board the question is, is that enough and significant to unlock our potentials, given the fact that, of course, we're expecting an additional 600 million tranche from the IMF? Uh, Isaac Kofi, data analyst, will join us. Is here with us. Um, good news.
Absolutely good news, but if you compare it, you realize that the biggest part of this whole external debt restructuring hasn't been done yet because we are looking at the issue from two angles. We are looking at talking to the bilateral official creditors and then also talking to the Eurobond guys, Mm. which are the external commercial creditors. And you heard there, you made mention of it, that there will be no haircut on the bilateral guys. Possibly, or probably that's the reason why we've been able to get the restructuring done so fast. Mm. So what we are doing here is what we call the debt moratorium. It's just postponement of the payment Mm. for a period of time. We understand it's supposed to be around four to five years. And then we'll start paying. So if you do $5.4 billion and you strike the average over a period of four years, then it means that in 2024 we probably will be enjoying, you know, suspension of interest payment. That will give us a fiscal, you know, space of about $140 million. We are also expecting $600 million from the IMF and about $420 million from the World Bank. And... The entire 2024 IMF uh, budgeted to give us 720 million. That's for 2024. Yeah. The 600 million is uh, you know an overflow from the 2023 uh, our inability to unlock that money. Now let's talk about the most difficult part of this whole restructuring, which is the external commercial creditors, the eurobond guys. We are talking about 73 percent of the entire debt earmarked for restructuring. And if you do the math, then it means that this is possibly going to be the most difficult one Mm -hmm. because we've asked the bondholders to give us a haircut of up to 40% on the principal and up to 5% on the interest. Uh, And part of the figures that you're looking at here. Yeah, so so there you have it, $14.6 billion. We are looking at two groups over Mm -hmm. there, the Eurobond creditors and the non-insured commercial banks. These are the people that many experts are saying that it is going to be difficult, mm-hmm. unlike the assurance that we've been able to get from the uh, you know, bilateral creditors. With these guys, the reason why it's a bit sophisticated is that you have what we call the blue chip investors, those who bought the bonds at its original stage. When they sense the danger in 2022, they dumped the bonds. Yeah. And anyone who would buy a bond that has um, high risks attached to it shows that the person is willing and ready to hold it onto the day of maturity right. and ready to bear the maximum cost and then also risks and make sure that you should know that those who are holding our current bonds, it will not be so easy to talk to them. Even at the bilateral side, you need to make sure that the the agreements you have with country A or group A should be the same as the agreements you have with. If you create anything that any of them sends that there's some sort of disparity in terms of the agreement. It may cause the deal to actually collapse or something mm. like that. But what we know is that what it was important for us to get the $600 million unlock was their assurance. Yeah. And they've given us the assurance. And as you said, the finance minister said, we are not going to look at the nitty-gritties of the deal and agree on the terms and conditions. Mm. So for even at the bilateral side, actual restructuring... Yeah or the debt, the debt moratorium, or the debt relief for that period has not been agreed on. Uh, the finance minister, Ken of Wereta, we understand he said it for China next week. Mm. Why China and how significant is China to the conversation? Well, China, if you look at the bilateral debts, China holds more than 40% of the amount that we are talking about. We are looking at a, a debt of you know, $5.2 billion. Mm. Uh, 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 dollars. And China, we owe them about $1.9 billion. 
and you saw in the IMF program document yeah. that we have some 640 million in terms of collateralized loans mm -hmm. and all of these loans are owed to China you do not have any form of collateralized yeah. loan at, that you owe any other country mm -hmm. so you have it on the screen yeah. there you see the you know the amount that we owe China mm -hmm. just if you look at it on the right. bilateral scale yes it is the only single country that Ghana owes more than you know a billion dollar we do not owe any one major country yeah. more than a billion dollar that's why China is so strategic and look look at it from this angle the Paris club China is not supposed to be a member but when they were forming the official creditor committee they made China a co-chair to that committee. It shows how important China is mm -hmm. and that other creditors will also be looking at China because they don't want to sense anything fishy because there's a country that you have collateralized debt. Some of the, 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 the debts you owe them, they say if you default, they can even have access to your, your electricity sales and then even your gold bauxite and even cocoa. So they are looking at all of this and because if we are all sacrificing for the next four years, we must be confident and sure that the country will be able to raise more forex from the sale of, you know, uh, cocoa, gold, bauxite, and whatever in the next four years to pay all of us. Because if they don't do this, then it means that in 2023 alone, 2024 alone, Ghana would have to find about three billion U.S. dollars to pay interest on only external, you know, uh, um, um, you know, uh, bonds or external debt, which we do not have that man. That man is equivalent to what the IMF is giving us. So it tells you how. Escuchas ese rugido. Sientes la experiencia de poder, la emoción de la libertad. Ya estás preparado para vivir tu nueva aventura. Nueva Ram 1500, hecha para vivir. Ram es una marca registrada de FCA US LLC. Crucial, the debt restructuring is, and it's good news that they've been able to give us a breathing space for at least four years. But some say. We are only postponing our problems and that any other person who take over the reins of power that this government may face difficult times ahead. Isaac Kofiyaji uh, joining us with the latest uh, on the figures when it comes to IMF. And now uh, the Education Minister, Yao Seyaduchum, is charging the Ghana Tertiary Education Commission, GTEC, to work in collaboration with tertiary institutions to realign the university curriculum to ensure a seamless Accommodation of students uh, from STEM and vocational institutions who are learning AI courses such as robotics and also computer sciences. According to the minister, the children in their pre-tertiary schools have the hands-on training uh, in these fields, hence the need for a seamless transition into the tertiary institutions. With the fast development of technology and artificial intelligence in Africa, its impact on everyday life cannot be underestimated. Ghana's Education Minister, Dr. Yao Osei Edichum, is confident the introduction of AI and advanced technology in the Ghanaian education system will improve educational outcomes. So AI is critical for proficiency in various subjects. But beyond that, I think the most critical aspect of it is that it can be a teaching tool. And AI can predict, tell a teacher, focus on this, and this student will do better. And I think it allows for us to really get rid of learning poverty. We are doing some great things in this country, but AI will give us a very important uh, mechanism to really do 
much better and catch up and make sure we bridge the learning gap between us and other developed countries. The minister also charged the Ghana Tertiary Education Commission, GTEC, to work in collaboration with tertiary institutions to realign the university curriculum to ensure a seamless accommodation of students from STEM and vocational institutions who are learning AI courses. Now, if you begin to take a look at what is happening in the high school space, you go to Accra High and you see that they are doing engineering sciences. We have new STEM schools uh, that are being uh, uh, that are functioning from Abomusu to Pasempe to all these places. Children are inventing and flying drones like at Afia Kubiampim. Our tertiary institutions have to now begin to look at how they accommodate the learning needs of these new students who are using their minds and using their hands in designing uh, robots and doing so many unique things. So we have to, uh, GTEC uh, has to work with tertiary education institutions. Already NACA is designing new high school curriculum uh, which has involved the universities. So the idea is to make sure that we have a seamless transition from high school to the university so far as the ICT field is concerned. Conference on the impact of artificial intelligence and ICT on Ghana's education was organized by the Education Ministry in collaboration with Yonsei University of Korea. It is to deliberate on how Ghana can learn from the Korean experience to develop the Ghanaian system. Jang Sai Kim is the head of research for the university. Korea was the poorest country in the world in the 1960s and 70s. And Ghana was much advanced than Korea in the 1970s. But now, Korea has been one of the leading countries in economy and society in the world level. But we believe that our experiences and knowledge and insight can be shared with our colleagues in Ghana. So that's why we are here. On how Ghana can position herself to reap the full benefits of AI and technology, he believes the training must start at the basic levels. Well, today I invited many high school students. They are our future. Then we need to focus on junior high school, high school and primary school students. And when they grow up, they will use ICT. Just as we use a fork and knife, they will use ICT and AI. And they will make their own way of strategic development in Ghana society. With these collaboration between Ghana and the Republic of Korea, Ghana is hopeful of leveraging the Korean experience and expertise to develop a sustainable education and AI and ICT in order to reap the full benefits. And our policy think tank, Imani Ghana, is proposing a standard of ethics that will benefit humanity in the wake of the gradual acceptance of artificial intelligence in all aspects of life. Although Imani Ghana contends that Ghana is still at an early stage of adoption of AI, it has indicated the need for a framework to benefit the people while defining the direction to adopt it. Vice President of Imani, Salon Brantier, who was speaking on the Super Morning Show, indicated the failure to do so would deepen the inequality gap. Uh, I believe that we are at that point where um, some standards of ethics would ensure that there would be the mainstream AI that would benefit humanity and uh, work will be done to create that uh, preventative uh, uh, systems or platforms that will ensure that errant AI, uh, uh, what do you call it, technology, would not interfere with 
our framework of life as we have it now. And those are discussions that are going on. But you see, we are still at the very nascent stage where we do not even know the extent to which this is going to really affect us. Uh, for some of us, that is the, the, the benefit is that we can sit back in the developing world watch how some of these things pan out so that we can then tune, uh, tune uh, whatever is there to benefit us as a people. But you see, we should begin to look inside ourselves you know, as a country, as a people, as a nation, and define what we want to do. If we are a country that is benefiting from extractive resources, how are we going to work towards building our AI to ensure that our extractive resources are safeguarded to ensure economic growth? Because one of the things that AI is going to do is that it's going to, uh, there's a possibility that it's going to enhance economic inequality, where those with access to AI tools are going to benefit way better than those without them. Which means that in certain professions, uh, if you use or deploy AI tools, your competitive advantage would be such that you would be um, reaping far more benefits economically than others. So then it means that there will be that inequality gap that will begin to exist. And that will start existing on it because this world is a globally competitive one. And if we sit down and then we look into the skies, um, we are going to have a lot of foreign companies who are deploying these AI solutions beat us the local ones, even to things that we want to do locally. So then now we now have to look into ourselves and ask ourselves, how do we use any system or any technology that has been deployed to benefit us as a people in a way that we can now replicate such things across the world and be um, also innovators, pioneers and things, and then rather be a net exporter of the technology and the uh, innovation. Our private legal practitioner Christopher Nuku asserts that Ghana currently lacks the capacity to introduce legislation governing the use and development of AI. I, I think the first step is, is building understanding of how these technologies work because currently there, there's a lot of misinformation and misconception about how AI works. So for instance AI is not a a product. AI is a technology that is being used to develop and influence how services and products are developed across various sectors. So, first thing we must do as a country is to is to understand the full extent and scope of how these technologies are influencing things we are concerned about. Because it is a, it is from that standpoint that we'll be able to properly put in policies and programs that harness the full benefits of these technologies. Because without understanding, trust me, we'll, we'll put in legislation, we'll put in policies that do not address the real uses and concerns for these technologies that are emerging. And I'm not sure we've seen the end of it, but we have the potential, but currently we do not have the capacity to be able to, to do anything uh, as far as legislating uh, the development and use of these technologies are concerned. Package of the polls and let us log on to myjoyonline.com. Lots of stories there for you uh, to catch up on. It's been a pleasure serving you here on the polls. We'll see you again tomorrow. Bye bye for now. Next is Let's Talk Showbiz. Thanks for watching. Los mejores viajes nacen en la carretera, pero este. Comenzará en tu mente. 
¿Escuchas ese rugido? ¿Sientes la experiencia de poder? ¿La emoción de la libertad? Ya estás preparado para vivir tu nueva aventura. Nueva Ram 1500. Hecha para vivir. Ram es una marca registrada de FCA US LLC.